After Joseph and his brothers died, the population of Israelites living in Egypt exploded. It grew so large that the new Pharaoh was fearful that they would form an army against Egypt. So he made the Israelites slaves, forcing them to make bricks all day long. Then Pharaoh took it a step further. He issued a ruling that all newborn Hebrew boys should be killed. Soon after that, an Israelite woman gave birth to a son. Fearful he would be killed, she put him in a basket and placed him in the Nile River. The basket floated downstream and was found by Pharaoh's daughter. She raised the boy in Pharaoh's palace as if he were her own child. She named him Moses. Years later, Moses saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave. Moses became angry and murdered the Egyptian. Fearing for his own life, Moses fled into the wilderness where he became a shepherd. One day while he was tending his flock, he saw something incredible. A bush that was engulfed in flames, but was not burning up. Then Moses heard God's voice coming from the bush. God had seen the suffering of the Israelites and wanted Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses went back to Egypt and met with Pharaoh. He asked that the Israelites be given a short break from their labor to hold a festival to worship God. Pharaoh not only denied the request, but made the Israelites work even more difficult to punish them. But this was just the beginning. To prove that God was on Israel's side, God brought great disasters called plagues on Egypt. God made all the water of Egypt turn into blood, filled the land with frogs and insects, sent diseases to kill the Egyptian animals, gave the people terrible sores, and brought terrible thunderstorms and terrifying darkness. Then God sent one final plague. God protected the Israelites by giving instructions to each family to take a perfect sheep, sacrifice it, and put its blood on the door frames of their houses. The Israelites did what God commanded. At midnight, God moved throughout Egypt and every firstborn son, including Pharaoh's, were killed. But God passed over every house that had blood on its doorframe. Pharaoh was so overwhelmed that he practically begged the Israelites to leave. So in the middle of the night, after living there for 430 years, the Israelites left Egypt. However, Pharaoh once again changed his mind and sent his armies after the Israelites. They chased them for miles until finally they trapped the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea. But God instructed Moses to raise his staff above the water. When he did, a strong wind blew across the sea, creating dry land for the Israelites to walk across. After they reached the other side, God caused the water to crash back down, drowning all of the Egyptians who were following close behind. The Israelites journeyed far away from Egypt. Along the way, God took care of them, giving them quail in the evenings and flaky bread called manna in the mornings. Many times the Israelites complained about their living conditions, but Moses would remind them of God's goodness and continue to lead them toward the land God had promised them.
morning, brothers and sisters. It's wonderful to be with you again. My name is Jeff Leo, and uh, my family is here with me today. And to all the folks who are tuning in online, glad that you're here. You know, I was thinking about uh, Tim's question to us this morning about remembering God's faithfulness, God's mighty deliverance of us. Um, and I was actually, as I was preparing the sermon, kind of having a roadblock, like, which story do I choose? Uh, and as I was sitting here this morning, I realized I was sitting next to uh, the woman who helped to baptize me. Uh, I remember waiting to be baptized, longing to join God's family, and waiting for years and years because my family wasn't ready for that to happen yet. And uh, finally, in college, when I was ready to be baptized, ready to even break part ways, you know, to pay whatever cost that it took in order to declare that I belong to, to Jesus, heart, mind, soul, and strength, um, that I took the plunge, and Lisa was there with me. God is merciful and good, powerful and just, and I'm grateful this morning, but none of that's part of the sermon this morning. I'm also grateful that my kids are here with me this morning, and um, there are two examiners who are listening to this sermon, uh, scrutinizing what I'm doing this morning, but I can guarantee you that none more scrutinizing than my two children. Uh, I am thankful to this congregation. I try to keep up with the prayers and praises of this congregation as uh, the, the emails hit my inbox. I continue to be grateful to you, Pastor Don, um, and the local council here, to everyone who has been willing to walk with me through this ordination process, which started when I was first the chaplain of the Claremont Colleges, and they said, you need to be ordained, and I said, okay, I'll go do that. Actually, that journey started long before, back in 2008, when I was in seminary, I started contemplating ordination, and here I am today at, a, at the end of a, uh, near the end of a very, very long process. I have to tell you, it's not every denomination, and it's not every congregation that thinks about what Lisa and I do for work as ordainable ministry. Brothers and sisters, if, if ordination has something to do with the call of God for the preaching of the word and service and captivity to the lordship of Jesus Christ for those purposes, not everybody thinks that what we do on campus is, is that. In fact, there's a lot of places that look at what we do and they think, well, you're probably a little bit too close to the university. That's just kind of weird or strange or maybe the university's rubbing off on you. And so I am extra grateful to this congregation and to your leaders for walking with me. And I'm glad to submit to the office bearers of this denomination. Um, I was thinking about this ordination journey, and I don't delete most of my emails. I have them going all the way back uh, to when I was in uh, college. So I looked through my files. Turns out 2008 is when I started. We had just left Ann Arbor, Michigan, in order for me to attend seminary in Chicago. And we had been part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Since that was my connection, I went under care there. It was in and through the ministry of InterVarsity in Ann Arbor that I first began to feel uh, that the Lord was calling me into a life taken captive by him for his purposes. So um, Don gave me this little uh, magic wand here. And let's see if I can pull up this first picture. 
So this is uh, me and Lisa before we had kids. Our kids are now 15 and 12. And um, we often look at each other and think to ourselves how good God is that we are together and that we love each other. Because, and many of you know this, we didn't know anything back then. We didn't know anything about each other. We didn't know anything about marriage, what it would take to love each other. We didn't know anything about the conflicts that were to come. We didn't know anything about the hardships of life. And I certainly didn't know the value of a dollar. And I learned that from Lisa. Like wandering in the desert. I really had no idea which way the Lord would take us. And so many times... Lisa knows this, so many times I grumbled to God because life was easier when we were closer to family. Life was easier when we were closer to our group of friends that we had fought hard to be with. Life was easier. In seminary in the middle of the night, overloaded with courses because I was trying to hurry, the only place open 24 hours was the rest stop on the highway, you know, the kind that goes over the highway? You have to pull off the highway and you go to the rest stop. That was the only place that was open 24 hours for me to study so that I could fill myself with caffeinated beverages at the Taco Bell. I mean, talk about despair, right? I needed deliverance, I felt it. When we moved to Southern California in 2009, I was making the drive from Glendale to Pasadena where I was working at a church And I was passing hillsides that were ablaze, literally 10 feet from me. And if only that was a burning bush moment, but it was actually fire. Where did we move? Couldn't I just go back to a place that wasn't on fire? Halfway through my PhD program, I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD. Now think about that for a second. PhD students are supposed to read a lot of books. They're supposed to spend long hours in the library looking at a blank wall or a screen or a book. And I went to my advisor and I told him I have this diagnosis and he looked at me you know, with, with compassion. And he said, well, you come this far. And I can tell you, only God could have gotten me through that Red Sea experience. Now, There are so many ways to read myself into the Exodus story, which is the passage we're in for this fourth chapter of the story. Everyone from George Washington to Martin Luther King Jr. has borrowed images from the biblical narrative of the Exodus to give shape to the way that they understand what God's doing in their life and what they're doing in the world. So I want you to think about this word deliverance. Tim has already gotten us started in thinking about that. And I want you to just take a second, if you need to, you can close your eyes, just to become aware of what you think you need to be delivered from. What you think you need to be delivered from. If you've got it, good. Hold on to it. Take it in one hand. I'm not going to take it away from you, but I want you to put it to the side for a second. You can hold on to it. This passage is really familiar to us, and we can read ourselves into it. But I want to show you a few things that the Lord put on my heart as I was preparing, because it can be a little too easy to insert ourselves. When we do that, 
when we insert ourselves into the story, sometimes we become the center. And I want to caution you this morning. God is the center. God's work of deliverance doesn't stop with you as if you were the center. God's deliverance goes on to every nation, tribe, and language, goes on to every part of our world that's hungering and thirsting, wanting for righteousness to dawn like the morning. It goes on to every broken heart in need of healing and redemption. And it goes on through the work of God's Spirit in all of us who have been taken captive for service unto God, that we might do the works that God has set apart for us to do from before the foundations of the world. That's God's deliverance. It's not just you. So, Lord, I ask for fresh eyes and open hearts. Search our thoughts and show us more of yourself as you deliver your people from many slaveries for your great namesake. Amen. Church, there are three attributes of God's deliverance that I want to run us through this morning to highlight from this part of the Exodus story. Number one, God's deliverance is justice for the downtrodden. Number two, God's deliverance is faithful to his word. And number three, God's deliverance is powerful so we never forget. Let's look at the first attribute. God's deliverance is justice for the downtrodden. So let me remind you where we left off last week. Jacob's family ended up in Egypt thanks to Joseph's providential rise to power from the, in, in the Egyptian empire. And God's chosen people, they weren't just say, like plucked from a famine. They were granted the choicest prime real estate where they were able to prosper. And this week the video said it right at the beginning. They became so prosperous, it became a little bit of a problem. You see, prosperity doesn't always protect you, does it? When you're a refugee or a foreigner, you look different in a land that's not yours. It doesn't matter how prosperous you are, terrible things can still happen. That's where the Exodus story begins. God's people prospered so much, they were fruitful and they multiplied, Exodus says, just like Genesis 1 asked them to be, so prosperous that Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire became really worried. The anxious new pharaoh that had come into power looks at this group of foreigners. They're refugees. And he says, and I quote, if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Listen carefully to what pharaoh is concerned about. Number one, are these foreigners loyal to me or are they a threat? That's the first concern. Number two, what are we going to do if they up and leave us? Two concerns Pharaoh has there. Now that first concern about loyalty, it sounds uncomfortably familiar to me. I was born in 1979. I remember living through a time when the rise of the Japanese auto industry led to widespread hate of people who looked Asian. I remember that our church, our Tulsa Chinese Christian church, was spray painted with a swastika and we were told to die. 
we discovered it one Sunday morning as we came to worship. I remember learning for the first time about World War II internment camps and how U.S. citizens, U.S. citizens of Japanese descent were held in detention in the Santa Anita racetrack in Arcadia, just a few miles from my house. There was even a questionnaire in those days that asked citizens directly about their loyalty and their allegiance. In recent years, I have had to counsel young adults and families through the anxiety that comes after being verbally attacked or even physically harmed because of the way that we look. It is an enormous turn of events then for Gentiles like me and almost all of us here to be welcomed in as refugees from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, as the Apostle Paul describes it. Paul even tells the Ephesians, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise. The people of God are acquainted with feeling foreign. But for Egypt, prejudice against the foreign Israelite refugees was just the tip of the iceberg. It gets way worse. Pharaoh was concerned about what would happen if there were no more Israelite workers. I mean, think about a million people leaving your economy. Who's going to raise the crops? Who's going to feed the livestock? Who will be the service industry? What would happen to the economy? So the next thing Pharaoh did was to enslave them so they couldn't leave. The NIV says he worked them ruthlessly. And then to add insult to industry, industry, to add insult to injury. I guess the other one works too. He takes their straw away from the brickmakers, making it much more difficult. Now the work is harder, but he didn't change the quota. He didn't change the quota, and in chapter, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, what's wrong with these folks? Why aren't they producing the way that I want them to? They must be, in his words, lazy. They must be lazy. Pharaoh was the evil genius, the cruel architect of an entire slave economy, and he has the gall to call them lazy. It's his diabolical plan to work them harder so they couldn't even have the opportunity to think of freedom. But God, <laughs> but God, Exodus says, was concerned about his people. Unlike Pharaoh, God heard their cries. God promised deliverance from injustice. Pharaoh wanted the Israelites to be his labor force. He couldn't afford to lose them. In the interests of the empire, he was ready to go to the cruelest lengths to make sure that Egypt would prosper, but God's people would not be cogs in a wheel. No, they had been called to be a kingdom of priests that serve God alone and pay allegiance only to him. God's people are not beasts of burden. And God had pronounced to our father Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse, which is what we'll talk about in a little bit. But I want to stay on this theme of justice a little more, and this is where I need to ask you to lean in. Occasionally when I preach, I 
I come bearing bad news from the front lines, and I, I humbly ask that you not shoot the messenger. Part of my job is to keep up with cultural changes from generation to generation. And brothers and sisters, the news is somewhat concerning. There are important cultural shifts that are happening that I see on campus and among young people. I want to show you an example of how young workers think about the workplace. Not that one. Let's see if I can go. Ah, okay. Oh, you're, we're fighting now. Okay, I'm going to let go. This is Laura, a Canadian content creator. She's one of countless many who have taken to social media to express their discontent with what work has come to mean for them. When young workers feel like cogs in a wheel, making money for big corporate, any talk of loyalty to the company makes no sense to them. Young workers on social media encourage each other that going above and beyond just isn't what they're being paid for, so don't trust corporate to see your worth. HR is not your friend, corporate is not your friend. Let's look at what she says. When work gets tough and I'm burned out from putting in extra hours, I remind myself how I'm gonna be treated for going above and beyond. Next slide. The same as all the employees who do the bare minimum. Church, there's a jadedness among young workers that I am beginning to hear very loudly that you do what you're paid for. And what I'm here to do this morning as I'm being examined for minister of the word is quite the opposite. And I've told a lot of young workers this. The theology that's missing here is that sometimes there is a calling from God to which you are willing to give all your life's energy because you believe in your heart and you trust in faith that God has asked you to give what you have in his service, that is a different economy, is it not? Now, I'm sure you have thoughts about this, and I hope we have the opportunity to discuss cultural changes like this and how ministry has got to engage young people, but I do want to caution you here. It's not uncommon for me to hear people talking about the next generation of young workers with contempt. There is a word that we use that I often hear them called lazy for complaining the way that they do. They just don't want to do the work. And as I read this morning's passage, the resonance between Pharaoh's system and the cries of young workers, it's resonating. I'm not saying I have a solution. I'm just pointing out something that resonates. I want to be careful to explain. Here's what I'm not saying. Okay, I'm not equating frustration at work to enslavement of Israel or its related occurrence in American history. I'm not saying that. But there is something common among both of these. That word is idolatry. Idolatry. For Pharaoh, there was nothing higher than Egypt's national interest. And that was supported by his, his gods. When Moses first asks them to release Israel so they can worship Yahweh in the desert, Pharaoh says, I don't know this Yahweh. He wanted them to stay and work. Pharaoh's idolatry led directly to his injustice. But God's people, God's people do not worship a golden calf or a bronze bull on Wall Street. 
God's people have a holy calling. God's people are instructed to give the worker their wages, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, to not mistreat the foreigner, Exodus 22, that instead they're a royal priesthood, Exodus 19, 1 Peter 2. And here's what gets me. Five times in Deuteronomy, the people of God are instructed to act justly to abstain from doing evil, evil, to observe the righteous laws that they're being given, all because, hear me now, all because you were once slaves in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, people who have been set free must not forget how awful captivity was. And this morning, if you have no acquaintance with how awful captivity was, you would do well to ask someone who does. Listen to their story of deliverance. Hear them and the power of God in their story. Israel was even instructed to teach their children through the Passover observance. So our children, my children, must hear about a God who hears the cries of his people, delivers them from injustice, and requires them to remember both deliverance and injustice so that they never repeat those mistakes again. Never repeat those mistakes again. Never repeat. Well, if you keep reading Exodus or the rest of the Bible, you'll see that God's people make those mistakes again and again. What's amazing to me is God's response. He responds by reminding them of his word, his promise. God's deliverance is faithful to his word. Now, in these 17 chapters, God makes tons of reassurances, but it almost seems like it doesn't matter whenever he's talking to Moses or Israel. Look at all the ways that Moses tried to squirm his way out of the job that God had set aside for him to do. In chapter 4 alone, Moses squirms five times. First, who am I? Second, well, what if if they ask who sent me? I don't have any authority of my own. Number three, what if they think I'm making it all up? Number four, but I'm not eloquent. I'm not good at talking. Number five, he gets really direct with God. Please send someone else. And God says, okay, you can take Aaron with you, but you're still the guy. God reminds Moses who God is. And he uses this line over and over again, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He even tells Moses his name, Yahweh. He grants some of his own miracle-working power to Moses, and this is the God who made a promise to our father Abraham, who's got the power to make good on all his promises. So now Moses has no excuse, and neither do we. He confronts Pharaoh for the first time, and Pharaoh gets angry and becomes even harsher with Moses' people. Moses plummets back into faithlessness. Is this what you brought me here to do, Yahweh? You haven't delivered your people at all, Moses says to God's face. The audacity. God replied with the same line, Moses, I am Yahweh the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I made a promise. I have the power to do it. And you will see marvelous works. Can I ask you all a 
kind of personal question? I'm going to do it anyway. When the pandemic started, did you hoard toilet paper? Were you tempted? When I saw the images of shelves emptying, I admit I started to panic because I didn't even want to think about what things would be like if we didn't have toilet paper. But you know what occurred to me as I was preparing? If I had hoarded so that I am well supplied, then I worsen the shortage for someone else. Totally self-centered. That's what worry can do. Israel was worried too. Wandering in the desert, what am I going to drink? What am I going to eat? Where, where are we going? They began to grumble against God and against Moses, but God provided miraculously food from the sky, not just bread, which was sweet, also meat when they asked for it. And then when God provided, what did Israel do? Some of them hoarded. That's what worry can do. Now, do you remember when people started hoarding hand sanitizer and then increasing the price so that they could turn a profit? Do you remember when, not pandemic-related, when Martin Shkreli bought the rights to an HIV medication and increased the price thousands of percent so that people who relied on it to keep their viral load at bay could no longer afford it. Do you remember that? That's what idolatry can do. Worry, idolatry. The line is dangerously thin. Worry, idolatry. It's too thin for us to walk casually as if hoarding toilet paper, oh, I get that, that's human nature. Martin Shkreli, oh, I would never do that. Two casual brothers and sisters. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ gathered his disciples to himself and he taught them the parable of the rich fool in Luke's gospel. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He taught them that there is no security where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. What did Jesus remind his hearers? Yahweh, the covenant God, he loves you. He loves you more than the birds of the field. So seek his kingdom, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who promised to deliver us, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who gave his only begotten son, God's word is a record of his unbreakable promise to love and deliver us, to make his people his own, to be our God, to dwell with us in all his splendor, and for us to reign with him forever. God has made a promise and will accomplish it by his mighty right arm. Amen? And that's how we know God's deliverance is powerful, the right, the might of his arm, so powerful that we never forget. In Genesis 12, when God promised our father Abraham that out of this one people, Israel, he would bless every nation, he also said, whoever curses Israel, I will curse. This is where the deliverance really begins to come in. 
These chapters shape every miracle, every display of the power of God in the rest of the Bible. And I want to remind you now that the awesome and terrifying display of God's power was not some kind of cosmic temper tantrum, as some of my classmates in college tried to tell me. I want to remind you that Israel is the apple of God's eye. He loves them. He loves you. God would give his only begotten son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to redeem this people. Yahweh, the covenant God, loves you with a jealous and a strong and effective love, strong enough to rescue you from the wages of sin and raise you to new life. Thanks be to God. In chapters 7 through 11, God steps in to fight on behalf of his people. Now, one of the important ways to understand the ten plagues is as a confrontation between Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It should have been impressive enough that Moses announces these plagues and then they happened, right? But Pharaoh's magicians tried to keep up. In Egypt, there were so many gods. There were three alone just for the Nile. So imagine what it means for the Nile to turn to blood. Boom, vanquished those gods. The water gods provided life and fertility to the whole empire. It's as if they had been vanquished. There was a god for the sun. His name was Ra. So for darkness to cover the land, it was as if Ra had been vanquished. Isis and Imhotep were the gods of health and healing. So for the Egyptians to be covered in boils was as if Isis and Imhotep had been vanquished. As these chapters go on, there is a literary pattern of decay. For example, at first the magicians try to keep up, but then by plague three, they know that they can't do it anymore, so they try to advise Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're scared, but Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. It was he who ordered the murder of the Israelite children. This was his brand of justice. This was his brand of religion. And so this was Egypt's common sense. Everything Pharaoh did, that makes sense. We should persecute Israel. And this god, little g, Pharaoh, was the last one to be vanquished. Look at this pattern with me. So you see through plagues one through five, there's a fairly consistent pattern of Pharaoh saying, or the Exodus narrative saying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But that pattern begins to dissolve in plague six until it becomes quite clear that someone else is at work. You can see the shift taking place. One by one, everything that was part of Egypt's national interest got taken away. The Nile watered their crops. The livestock plowed their fields. The boils crippled the entire workforce. The hail destroyed the orchard. The locusts ate up any scrap that was left. Pharaoh was trying to maintain a slave economy, and Yahweh put a spectacular end to that. But there was one confrontation left, plague number 10. God confronts this Pharaoh, little g. And at this point, it's God doing all the hardening. 
as if Pharaoh becomes God's instrument of justice and judgment. Pharaoh had many opportunities to repent. He was asked to let God's people go to worship him in the desert, but he put up a roadblock for that. By plague six, he goes over the edge. Pharaoh's own evil becomes his own destruction, and God confronts him. Pharaoh's evil cannot stop Yahweh's love and justice. There is no evil that can stop God's love and justice for his people. So let me ask you this. How do you remember God's deliverance and love for you? I'll talk a little bit about baptism and the Lord's Supper in a moment, but I'm just talking about for your own spiritual life. For about a month after I graduated from Fuller, I was delivered. And I had this hardback copy of the book that I had written, my dissertation. For about a month, that was how I remembered God's goodness. I'm not sure where, I think it's propping something up now in a room somewhere on the floor. I, I, I think it's in my room. I better find another Ebenezer, right? Ebenezer, that pile of rocks that Israel put up to commemorate God's victory over the Philistines. Do you have one of those? Because Israel remembered God's deliverance by observing the Passover. They had been instructed to pack up their things, be ready to go, prepare fast food. Don't wait for the bread to rise. In fact, don't even use yeast. That takes too long. Take the blood of a lamb and put it on the door frames of your homes as a sign for the angel of death to pass over an Israelite home. Church, we know Jesus is the lamb who was slain. Jesus came out of Egypt like Moses. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus provides bread to nourish his people as we await his return. In the waters of baptism, it's the spirit that Jesus foretold who seals us as people of the promise, the new covenant in Christ's blood. So, Jesus is the one who satisfies God's justice and teaches us to obey his commands. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's faithful promise to Israel in his own body. Jesus is the one who in his death and the power of his resurrection delivers his people from sin and death and to new life. So we remember Jesus, our deliverer. But hear me now. Jesus doesn't just deliver us from something. Jesus delivers us for something. Just like God in the Exodus. Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Brothers and sisters, a life of worshiping the living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the covenant-keeping God who delivers his people, this is what you were made for. The Apostle Paul instructs the church in Rome to offer their bodies, their bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He goes on to elaborate that every member of the body of Christ is to use their gifts in daily service to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. It is tempting. It is tempting to be lured back to Egypt, to place our trust in the power of the empire, 
to grumble that God has not in fact delivered us in Jesus Christ, and to long for the ways idolatry made life easier. Even if we can resist the urge to hoard for ourselves, it doesn't get any easier to make other people's problems our own, to place other people's needs above ours, to consider someone better than ourselves, to love our enemies. So let me remind you of what the writer to the Hebrews wrote. Israel wandering in the desert, he wrote, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during that time of testing in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, remember, Yahweh won the confrontation with Pharaoh. Yahweh, who is concerned with the cries of the downtrodden, Commit yourselves, brothers and sisters, to the way of Jesus. Commit yourselves. And I'd love to humbly ask that you would pray for me as I submit myself and all I am and all that I have for a life of service as minister of the word. I'm standing on the edge of 20 years of ministry facing forward into the second half of my working life. And I'm remembering God's deliverance and faithfulness that has brought me thus far. I hope you do too. Let me pray for us. Oh God, our deliverer, you are just, you are faithful, you are powerful. All praise and glory, honor, power, and strength are due to you. We give you praise and adoration this morning, and we ask, God, that you would impress, that you would emblazon on our minds and hearts your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Lord, we ask that for anyone this morning who does not know the horrors of being in captivity, that they would hear a faithful witness, a testimony of your power that delivered us from the jaws of the grave and raised us to new life. We ask that this church would be your witness in the world forever and ever. Amen.